what's going on, my podcast posse. Welcome to the Everyday Missionary Podcast. This is episode 202, 202 episodes in the can with many more to come. And today is sort of an interesting episode because it is the start of a series of episodes on a topic that's pretty dear to my heart, something that I've wanted to talk about for a while. And actually something that just a couple episodes ago, I kind of joked about a little bit because I'm like, I want to do this, but I don't want to do it without my wife. I really think she needs to be in it. And so I need to coax her into it before I start it. Well, now I'm going to start it without her, but I'm hoping to get her into it by the end of this whole thing. So I'll take a breath on that one. So the whole beginning of this and for the next, I don't know how many weeks, it might be as short as two, as many as five, I don't know, is to talk about the kind of purity culture that emerged in the 90s and has progressed up to today uh, and some of the uh, unanticipated or kind of unexpected negative side of that movement and then from that how we need to go forward by analyzing maybe where we might have missed some things and then from that hopefully we can move forward and do things a little bit better than we did them before. Now, The impetus for this is multifaceted, right? So uh, part of this is rooted in the fact that just a few years ago, we had this movement called the Me Too movement. And I know that within evangelical circles, this was sort of looked at from different points of view. And some people thought... It was overblown and overstated and an overreaction. And then other people, you know, kind of uh, treated it as though, no, this is the whole crux of everything hangs on this. And we must understand and identify every component of this. And 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 then there was all this kind of positioning in between. And, and for myself personally, at least, I probably erred a little bit more on the side of supporting the Me Too movement, because uh, having been in ministry for a long time, I have been a part of picking up the pieces and the baggage of a lot of sexual abuse and misuse and misogyny, and the list can go on and on and on. And so I looked at that and said, you know, I think it's important that there is a growing voice and an awareness of all of the ways, both obvious and subtle, that there can be the exploitation of individuals, whether it be women or children, or whether it be men even, it doesn't matter. I'm like, there can be exploitation all the way around. And I think it's really important to identify those things. And so I think part of why I wanted to do this whole little series on then the purity culture is related to that. Another reason I wanted to do this was because of the the fact that uh, in recent years, in kind of the aftermath of Me Too, there's been a lot of exposure as far as sexual abuse within the context of evangelical churches, whether it's by the hand of pastors or leaders or people serving within churches or churches that tried to bury any kind of misuse, abuse, uh, exploitation, like all of those things kind of came into play. In fact, even for me, uh, I'm a member or a part of um, Southern Baptist Seminary, so I'm continuing my education in that context. And the Southern Baptists literally have hundreds of sex abuse cases kind of arrayed against it. And uh, I think I've even mentioned this in the podcast recently, there was some talk that if there was an independent group that investigated the Southern Baptists more extensively, it would be exponential how many offenses there were. And so there has been this 
problem, which I'm going to see if I can capture right now as being part, not the only thing to blame in some of those cases, but part of what's to blame is when you have an environment that elevates a certain version or vision of sexual purity, what you get often as a consequence of that is repression. And when you have sexual repression within a religious community, it drives sexual sin underground, but underground, it finds ways to root out in other places. And often where that is, is either um, pornography habits that are kept secret, uh, exploitation of people that are kept secret, uh, seeking sexual cravings in uh, inappropriate ways with individuals that may not be able to resist those things, such as children or people that are impressionable or whatever else. And so I think in the spirit of the repression we allowed other types of sexual sin to fester and then kind of exploit other individuals. And that was part of the problem. And so that's another reason I want to deal with this. A third reason I want to deal with this is because having counseled many married couples for several years in the church, um, my wife and I have both found that in the context of Christian marriage, there's a lot of sexual repression. There's a lot of sexual frustration. There's a lot of uh, not engaging in sexuality within marriage because there's the baggage of shame or guilt or expectation or even a messaging that for the longest time it was like this quick speech of God made sex, sex is good, it's meant for marriage, now we'll never talk about it again. And if you do it before marriage, shame on you. And that was the consistent kind of messaging that got locked into people's heads. And then they become husband and wife and it still feels like sex would be dirty or wrong or maybe at best like you can do it if you have to, but don't enjoy it too much because that sounds like what sinners do, right? And so some of that was embedded into it also. And then you add to the fact that just as we were raising our kids or whatever else, maybe we didn't do a great job of educating them on the full range of sexuality and what it all entails, what it's about. Maybe the whole no and don't aspect was more moralistic than it was about human thriving and flourishing and the reinforcement of a a healthy psychology within their hearts and minds. And so from that, it set all these other weird mixed messages. And then if they explored that world before they were married, it created all sorts of extension baggage. And and so again, you can understand why this is so complicated and why I think there's tremendous value in dealing with this. And really where this was kind of started in my mind and why I went like, yeah, this would be really good to talk about, was a recent conversation with my oldest daughter. And so she's been married for a handful of years now. They just had their first child during COVID, getting ready to have their second here in December. And uh, we were kind of reminiscing on the wedding and everything else. And 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 so to give you a sense of kind of what that day looked like and how that's going to pivot into maybe my conversation then even in this first podcast, um, what had happened on that day is uh, we had a master plan. And the master plan is that I would walk my da- my daughter down the aisle. Uh, we get to the end. My friend, Rhett, who was a fellow pastor, was at the other end. He would say, who gives this woman to this man? I'd say her mother and I. He would say, you all may be seated. I would spin around and then I would do the ceremony. Now, that's actually what happened. But inside that little thing, there was a surprise waiting for me which is I walk my daughter down and then Rhett says to my daughter, Honor, uh, or he says of my daughter, Honor, he says, now she has something to share with her father. So my daughter turns to me, gives me a gift, and I open it, and it is the purity ring that I'd given my daughter when she turned 13. 
Now, to give this a quick reference, uh, our kids were all born in the 90s. My youngest was born in 2000. That was at kind of that start height, if you will, of the purity culture in the evangelical church. And so, I Kiss Dating Goodbye was the hot book. The idea that you don't date, you court, uh, that was really popular. And the idea that you give a purity ring to your daughters so they go, this is a sacred covenant, a symbol of me keeping myself for marriage. That was like a hot thing to do. And so we decided to do that with our kids. Now, in light of that, I want to also be clear that we did that with all three of our kids. And so one of the broken things I did see was parents doing this with their daughters, but not with their sons. As though, girls, your purity is more important than boys' purity, and in part because if you lose your purity, you're more tainted than a boy. I felt that seemed to be very chauvinistic, very sexist, not very consistent, and just seemed to be a broken idea. So we actually gave purity rank purity rings to all three of our kids. We were equal opportunists in that sense. And that ring symbolized this idea that you were making this pact to keep yourself pure till marriage. So all three of our kids had it. My daughter had it, hands it to me. And she says, dad, I, I waited because of you. So here's my purity ring given to you as I get ready to take my wedding ring and go into marriage. Now, some of you are going to say, how sweet, how precious, because both my daughter and my son-in-law were virgins when they got married. And so you might see this as like a, a, a giant win and how precious an image that is. But but here's a couple of things about this then that become a little interesting to me in, in reflection and in conversation with my daughter. The first, just in personal reflection as I thought about it, is how odd that she hands me her purity ring as though you can have my purity back because now I'm going to go have sex with my husband. And whether we mean to or not, that sounds inadvertently like it's a step down. Like, all right, virginity is purity. The absence of sex is purity. The presence of sex, even in marriage, while permissible, acceptable, allowable, the more ideal would be you stay celibate in your marriage, you know, like you retain your purity in your union. Like, I know that's not what we're saying, but it sort of sounds like that. And I've certainly been in environments and I've been to seminars and read books and heard things where there is this sense of like, hey, sex is permissible in marriage, but it's almost because we have these cravings, these hungers, we burn with lust. I mean, that's even Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Like, hey, it's better to marry than to burn with lust. It's too bad you got to put out those fires with some sex now and then. But if you can be strong, don't give into it. And so the branding instantly is broken because that's not what the Bible prescribes, sees, or envisions with sexuality. And we'll get into that here in just a little bit. All right, but that was the first thing I reflected on. Like, how strange. I'm giving you my purity ring back so I can get a wedding ring, so I can go do those things that are perhaps the opposite of what the purity ring really stood for. So there's a little bit of weird branding in that. The other part of the conversation conversation with my daughter was that she said, you know, I don't think we would give purity rings to our kids. And so they're not planning on doing that with my granddaughter Pepper or any of their other kids. And I said, really, why is that? And my daughter said, because... It's the weirdest thing, like here, here is this moment in a kid's life, like in our context, all of our kids were 13 when we gave the ring, and before this kid can process the full range of what this ring entails, we bind them to an oath. 
or this idea that, hey, I'm putting this on your finger. You didn't choose it, by the way. I'm making you wear this purity ring. Like, what 13-year-old can say to their parent, I don't want that, bro. I'm going to skip that one. Like, they can't do that, right? So you bind them to an oath that they really don't even have the maturity to be fully embracing or making. And then in that, what you're doing, because this is the one of the only times you give them an icon of an ethical commitment you want them to make, there's a sense in which this ethical commitment is higher than all the other ones. So I don't give my kids uh, an honesty ring. I don't give them a hardworking ring. I don't give them, you know, like a do your homework ring. I give them a purity ring. So I've instantly elevated that your sexual purity is of the highest value of all the other ethical values that I might want to impart into your life. And so instantly I've sent the message that there are two rings that you will get in life. One is your purity ring. The other is your wedding ring. Therefore, your sexual purity matters more to me than all the other value traits or characteristics I would want you to embrace. And hence, if you fail in this one, you have failed in the number one thing I expect of you. And from that, imagine the collateral damage and baggage and guilt and shame that is associated if, in fact, that line is crossed before they cross the wedding line. You know, like that's what gets communicated there. And so my daughter was like, yeah, it's a lot of pressure. It elevates this one thing over a lot of other things. If I happen to overstep that line, how do I come to you and tell you? How do I understand God's vision of this? Am I truly damaged goods? Am I a broken vessel? Have I failed in my most prime or my key responsibility and primary calling as a godly woman? Am I truly no longer pure? Am I just impure? And then how does that speak into my psyche and into my identity, right? Because here's the thing about sexuality and identity, right? This is a slight pivot off from that thought, but I'm going to try to help you understand this. Um, What is true is that our identity and our sexuality are pretty tightly intertwined. And, and and I think this is important because um, a couple of years ago, I remember there was this big push, especially in talking about uh, LGBTQ issues, that a lot of the talk within evangelicalism is saying this is an identity problem instead of a sexual problem, and, and they need to understand their identities in Christ more than their identities in their sexuality. And in that, there seemed to want to be this pretty giant gulf between identity and sexuality, and yet... I think the reality is our identity and sexuality are profoundly intertwined, whether we want them to be or not. And so if we have this sense of disgust, shame, deep disappointment in the decisions our kids may make, for example, sexually, that can easily be translated into we are disappointed with, we are disgusted by their individuality and their personhood particularly. So we go, you did this thing sexually and it's pretty easy to get translated into. And now I see you this way as an individual, or I see this, see you this way in your new identity. You used to be pure. Now you're impure. You were saving yourself in a holy way, but now you've given yourself away in a sloppy way. And that speaks into their psyche in a way that's destructive or damaging. And so this was that conversation my daughter and I were having. And I understand this. If we take this from a slightly different point of view for a second to see that the the close connection between uh, kind of identity and sexuality is take it to the worst case scenario, which is when somebody is sexually exploited 
when somebody is molested, when somebody is raped, uh, when somebody is simply sexually harassed or shamed in relationship to sexuality, where an authority figure shames somebody under them, but does so very clearly in a way that's meant to uh, dehumanize or demoralize from a sexual point of view. All of those things are not simply um, crossing the line sexually or it's not simply a physical sexual activity or act or violation, but it always translates into a psychological trauma of some kind, sometimes deep, deep, deep trauma, sometimes maybe not as deep depending on the level of offense, but all of those traumas are speaking directly to the identity of the person, not simply the sexuality of the person. So sexuality and identity are deeply connected, whether we want them to be or not. I see that in Genesis 2 and go, it makes perfect sense for me. So that's not shocking to me at all, actually. Um, there was something about them being naked and unashamed that links their sexuality and their identity and the lack of shame and everything else. And so it's all just a bundle in there. And so from this, my daughter was kind of saying like, man, with all of that pressure in place, all of that expectation, all of that sense of this is the loftiest thing, if I fail, how does God see me? How do you see me? Um, how do I recover from that? Can I recover from that? Am I just now marked as this new identity? And and from that, that again, unleashes a whole chain of events and, and challenges and hardships. And so from that, she's like, yeah, we're not going to do a purity ring, you know? And, and I'm like, this is really an interesting discussion. And I deeply appreciated it because in hindsight, you know what? I wouldn't do one either. I would not put that on my kids again. Not that I don't have a desire for my kids, for example, or a desire for anybody that claims the name of Christ. I go, I want you to have a life of flourishing. I want you to have a life that's freed from shame, free from guilt, free from pain, all of those things. I want that. So I want God's best for your life. But here's the reality about this topic of sexuality and Christianity and everything else. We are all broken vessels. We have all, we have all, I want to repeat that, we have all failed when it comes to God's standard of sexuality. We've all failed. And across the board in all sorts of ways, I think sometimes we think, well, failure is when you do a sexual thing that God says you shouldn't do. Well, that can be true. But equally true is failure could be you don't do a sexual thing that God tells you to do, right? And so there's as much sexual sin inside of marriage as there is outside of marriage. And then add to that, that when some people maybe go beyond the boundaries of what we envision as God's standard for sexual purity, we then sin against those people with our kind of uh, purity standard self-righteousness. And we stereotype, we shame, we guilt, we're angry with, we're disgusted by, we're disappointed in. Uh, maybe we talk about uh, females as then being somehow slutty, as men as just chucking it all away or being good old boys. And, and so even in that, there's a level of hypocrisy that happens uh, as though we're somehow uh, without sin and we're casting stones. And yet Jesus deals with that very thing. In fact, that was the irony of that story in John chapter 8. The strangeness is that the most sinful people that drug this poor adulterous woman and notice they don't bring the man. Much of our sin against sexual sin is sins against women when it comes to sexual sin. Not as much men. That's something to keep in, in mind as we continue with this theme over the next few weeks. 
But they drag this woman out, and Jesus is basically going to highlight the fact that you self-righteous people who act as though you don't struggle with your lust, you don't struggle with your fear, you don't have baggage, you're acting as though the other person that does it is worse than you. And so that's another type of sin that happens in this realm. And so we are all complicated. We are all messy. We all come with some kind of hang-up or hindrance or whatever that we have to be honest about. And I think because of that, what this compels us to is grace, humility, understanding, and ownership of all of our humanness. No matter where we err on this, if we err on the side of maybe, uh, you know, maybe crossing certain boundaries according to the Bible on sexuality, or we don't engage in the things that the Bible calls us to, or we don't have the proper biblical um, response to things when people maybe miss God's best for their lives in this arena, all the way around, we all have some blame and we all have some things to, to work on and heal and fix. And so that's the heart of this entire series is to try to deal with some of those things. And again, my heart is simply to be a primer in your life. I cannot answer every scenario, deal with everything. I know there are many of you who are going to be listening or watching and you've been wounded in one way or another. You've been wounded by maybe certain lifestyle choices. You've been wounded by religious or Christian people in your life that have attacked you for those choices. Um, Maybe you have habits in your life. Even right now, you have secret things and you're like, if I bring these to the surface, I'm going to be ridiculed or looked down on, or I'm going to cause people to be sickened by me. And so you go, I don't even know how to get out of my, my stuckness on this. Like there's so much going on. And so again, I can't speak to everything. I can't deal with every issue issue. I wish I could, but I'm hoping to begin to stitch together some ideas to help us move forward, to give us a healthier vision overall of what biblical purity is all about, what biblical sexuality is all about, and then healthy responses for anybody that is over or undershot the standards that God has, because both over and undershooting are dramatically important. And then in this, I hope to look at how we've maybe tried to approach this in wrong ways, identify the wrong ways, and then from, from that, try to find healthier ways of moving forward. And so the topics that I hope to address over this little micro series are things such as, and I've jotted some ideas down, how we tried to emphasize purity through ignorance versus education. And quite simply put, that's where we said, hey, we'll tell our kids, here's your birds and bees talk. You get one. Uh, we're going to talk about how God made it. It's good. It's beautiful. It's holy. Now let's never talk about it again until the day you're getting married. And then we're going to give you the green light, thumbs up, go do this. You go from I, I can't and I won't and I shouldn't to I will and I do and I shall. And then we can't figure out why all the gears are grinding and why it still feels somehow wrong, even though it's right. But it's because you've been told your entire life that is wrong until the day it's right. And, and that's a lot of complication. And I think the failure there is that we didn't educate all along the way, but rather we said ignorance is bliss until the day you get married. And now your ignorance is going to be your baggage and it's going to be the hindrance of your sex in your marriage. Lots of problems. We're better to educate. We're even better to educate toward things that we would maybe hope our kids wouldn't do. In other words, you should fully educate your kids on all the elements, including responsibilities, if they decide they're going to go down those roads, because you would rather they be responsible than foolish, even if they're making decisions that are not God's best, nor your heart. It's still better to go down that route. And so we're going to talk about this idea of ignorance versus education. And that may be a little uh, uncomfortable for some of us. I get it. 
but it's important. And I'm going to highlight that a little bit in this podcast, even today, on how the Bible encourages kind of education and at what level it does. So that's one thing we're going to look at. We're also going to look at how we promoted a a per, kind of a purity model through the lens of chauvinism more than egalitarianism. And what I mean by that is, A, I'm another dude talking about sex to the church, right? We don't often get to hear from women, which is part of the problem. It's why I want my wife to join me in this podcast. When I asked her at first, she says, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. I said, why not? She says, I'm going to get in trouble. I said, right, but we can get in trouble together. That's marriage, right? And so I'm hoping she'll jump in later in this series. But when I talk about chauvinism versus egalitarianism, here's an example of it. Uh, Okay, kids, we're all going to high school camp, and here's the rule. We're going to go down to the river. Everybody's going to be playing in the water, but the girls have to wear a shirt over their bathing suits because the guys might struggle, i.e., we're going to make the women behave because the men don't have good behavior. That is a chauvinistic response to the purity culture, not an egalitarian one. In other words, we're saying, we know you girls aren't doing anything wrong necessarily. The guys might want to do something wrong, but we don't want to tell the guys to have to behave, so we'll tell the girls to behave. That's sort of one of those broken things that we need to evaluate. So we're going to talk about that in this particular series. We're going to talk about how in our quest for purity, uh, we need to focus more on unlocking pleasure for both men and women, as opposed to stirring up shame, oftentimes more directed toward the women, but also at times toward men. And we want to deal with that and try to find a healthy balance as far as what God communicates to us. Sometimes we sought purity by seeking control more than by by inviting freedom. Like if we focus more on trying to invite the freedom that comes with certain decisions, as opposed to trying to leverage control that people wouldn't make the decisions we don't want them to make, perhaps we would be in better space. Because even the the law, when Paul talks about the purpose of the law in Romans, he says the law incites your sin. And so when we had these rules on purity that were more like law-based than gospel and grace-based, Of course it stirs up the desire to want to do those things. That's the function of the law. So we need to figure out a better way than control. It has to be about really inviting freedom. And then I think part of this too uh, is that our purity model was trying to keep people from doing things more than guiding them into proper things. So we wanted to create walls over bridges. And then from that, I think it just restarts the cycle. We err on the side of ignorance over knowledge and on and on and on it goes. And so those are some of the things we're going to try to capture in this whole thing. And what I want to do right now is just start into the first of those ideas and highlight a very simple thing. And then I'll probably double back to it in the next podcast. And it has everything to do with education versus ignorance. Because as I said earlier, I think one of the things that we as Christian leaders, parents, you know, educators, youth leaders, whatever it is, what we would say to one another is basically sex is for marriage. It's good and beautiful into discussion, right? Maybe a brief birds and bees talk like this thing does that thing. When they go together, it makes babies. There's what you need to know. Okay. Now the day you're married, go all in on this and and it's overwhelming or it's confusing or there's this mixed emotion uh, in dealing with married couples. My wife and I have talked to, to couples that literally did not consummate their marriage. I'm not exaggerating for years, for years, because one or the other in the marriage just felt it was still impure somehow or true godliness was to never do it. And it was only in weakness that you would do it and they didn't want to be weak. So they didn't do it. And those are some of the problems that occur. Or in that there was so little education, it's very self 
selfish for the man and not very given to the woman because it's like uh this is the everyday missionary podcast and the only position is missionary you know and and so there was like this this reality where then the 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 men christian men didn't know how to even give back to their wives. The wives never really enjoyed the process because they never received, they were just giving. And then it's more complicated all the more and misses the biblical design that is shown in educating versus ignorance. And here's the proof of this. God decided in his infinite wisdom to give us a book of the Bible dedicated just to this topic. So in the Old Testament, here's Solomon writing about sex between a husband and a wife. And here's some things about the Song of Solomon that are so incredible. The first is that it's playful. In describing biblical purity in sexuality, in marriage, it's incredibly playful. So the the woman in particular, what I love about this is the woman is super forward, right? So that's another thing. I think in our purity culture, we're like, okay, women need to be modest. By modest, even in their marriages, they need to be modest and they're not to be the pursuers and everything else. They're supposed to be kind of reserved because again, as we like to teach on our Christian books sometimes, women don't desire sex as much as men. And therefore there's again, this sense of, well, I just need to do it for him because he burns with less more than me and da, 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 da. All of that's a broken idea because in the song at Solomon, we actually see where she's like, okay, I'm going to get together with my husband and we're going to do it indoors and we're going to do it outdoors. We're going to do it in the field. We're going to do it in the garden. We're going to go to his house. We're going to go to my house. We're going to go to his mom's house and we're going to do it in all those places. That is very forward. That is very playful. That is very adventurous. And that is very biblical. Now, I know for some that instantly feels stressful because you've already felt kind of uncomfortable with sex and you've already felt like you don't know, you know, where the boundaries are, what pleases God or doesn't please God. And, and again, some of those things are deeper than I can deal with in a podcast, but I want to affirm the fact that this particular book of the Bible sees all these different locations as really, really cool and a real blessing and a real beautiful thing and a real playful thing. And then you look deeper into the book and what you see is that the man is celebrating all of the body parts of the woman and the woman is celebrating all the body parts of a man. And so it's visual as well as playful, right? And so they're, they're, they're just constantly commenting on each other's physique and appearance. And they're, they're complimenting all of the things that they see. And some of the compliments are hilarious. Like you read these compliments, and you're like, man, in this day and age, that would get me punched in the face by my wife. But in that day and age to say that her stomach was like a bundle of wheat, was a compliment, all right? And so it's just that way. So it's visual, it's playful, it's verbal. And in the verbal, another thing that's really cool is that the woman is telling the younger women, the virgins, I'm going to be with my husband here and there and everywhere. And let me tell you about his legs and let me tell you about his chest and let me tell you about his arms. And the man is telling the young man, let me tell you about my wife. Let me tell you about her thighs. Let me tell you about her stomach. Let me tell you about her hair and her teeth. And yes, even her breasts, right? Here's the weird thing about that. These two people are educating the younger people and not educating them in this way that's like quiet, ashamed, whispers, kind of like I'm going to hint at a couple of things and that's all. No, it's a graphic book. It's a graphic, celebratory, exciting, fun, playful, colorful, just extravaganza of sexuality. And God is like, all right, Holy Spirit, I want you to work in Solomon and write this down. I mean, that's how good it is, right? That's the way it's supposed to be. And so we then, as fellow Christians, should be the ones that say, you know what? We want to celebrate like God celebrates this topic. We want to be open about this topic like God is open about this topic. We don't want it to be something where we undereducate, but rather we overeducate. 
Now, I know part of the fear that we have in this is like, well, if you start telling single people all this stuff, it's just going to raise their testosterone, their libido, their passions, their pleasures. They're going to want to go do it if they learn about it. And I'm like, okay, here's the thing. That doesn't seem to be God's worry in giving us this book, right? Because here's the thing. All human beings struggle with temptation. All human beings struggle with lust. And the younger people in our society, they're going to struggle with it automatically because biologically they're wired for that desire. But here's what you would rather do. Educate people well, as opposed to undereducate. Because when you undereducate and then they're thrust into the environment down the road of marriage, then they're lost. Or worse yet, in their curiosity of education, there are rotten sources out there. And trust me, we would rather be the ones that are saying, let me take you to the Song of Solomon. Let me help you see this beautiful vision that God created, that God sanctioned, that God says is truly holy, truly pure. That's the thing. Christian sexuality, biblical sexuality isn't a lesser pure thing. It is a pure, pure thing. This is the way it was designed back in Genesis 2, man. Man was naked, woman was naked, and neither were ashamed. I mean, that's the way it should be celebrated as opposed to, let's not get anybody too kind of hot and bothered. Let's not tell anybody about this stuff. No, we need to do it that way because education is superior to limitation. And the more we try to keep these things kind of on the down low in the church, the more, again, it's just going to go underground and it's going to find other sources that really are more complicated or will entail more baggage. Because I guarantee you, as a pastor over my years, I have learned repeatedly that many people, men and women alike, get their education from porn more than they get their education from scripture and from the church because the church is just like, hey, I'm going to give you the nominal minimal standard on this and then I'm just going to hope you figure it out. Well, they do figure it out in all the wrong ways sometimes. And so we want to be the leaders on reclaiming a healthy, flourishing vision that's just as exciting, just as pure, and just as diverse as anything they can imagine. If there's anything that is part of the education model of Song of Solomon is that it is expansive, right? There is lots of variety, if you will, within the context of that book. And that variety, that playfulness, that verbalness, that visualization stuff that's all in there, that's God's best for the topic. This is what we have to own. So we need to remember that in our purity culture model, these things are part of the purity. Purity is not, oh, golly gee, we better get this out of the way. No, purity is we should try to figure out all the ways we can explore something like Song of Solomon in the context of our marriage so that it's healthy and strong and thriving. And for those who are one day going to be married, that we educate them well so that a husband isn't a taker but a giver. We educate them well so that a wife doesn't feel like she's, she's somehow being an unholy woman if she has sexual cravings or interest in things sexually or even has a stronger sexual urge than her husband. We don't want her feeling like somehow she is less pure for that. No, that's pure. This is why I want my wife in the podcast, right? And that's one of the blessings I have in my wife is that she's very open and she's communicative with me. And, and she, again, has a craving in these things different, but just as potent as me. And those are the things that we should celebrate as Christians. Those are the things that we should care about. Those are the things we want to emphasize because here's the thing we're called to do. We're called to bring the kingdom to bear on all things. And God is making all things new. And part of that all things new is reclaiming what was originally designed. And what was originally designed was naked and unashamed. 
playful, fun, ver- verbal, visual, invested. And we want to teach those coming up into those relationships what that's all about. Now, is that the only thing? No, there's a lot of other things we need to touch on over the next few weeks. But I wanted to start there with this week so that we understand we're not going to fail our kids, our grandkids, or one another in educating. We're not going to. We're going to fail if we undereducate. Because we leave people to their own devices to find other outlets or other sources of information, and usually those hurt more than help. But at the same time, we don't want to continue to divvy out the old information that we would give, which was limited, which is probably not even nearly robust enough in the vision of God, and certainly didn't comport to the things we see in the Song of Solomon. So what this means is maybe we need to repent and rethink some of our old ways as we embrace biblical ways. And yes, for some of you, that's going to make you sweat a little bit. I get it. I get it. For some of you, it's going to conflict you a little bit. I get it. For some, it's going to create even maybe initially a a tension in the marriage because there hasn't been communication. There hasn't been openness. Maybe for some, they're going to feel like certain things feel dirty and they don't know how to get past that. And that's going to be part of the challenge too. For some of you, you know, you just, you're just petrified by the notion of having a conversation with your spouse about sexuality, but that's part of the educating to talk with one another as well. All of these things are the reclaiming project because at the core, we're all growing. We're all being sanctified in all sorts of ways, including our sexuality. And if we want to pursue God's true purity standard, we need to get back to not the ways that it was thrust upon us or the ways our pure puritanical visions were kind of imparted into the evangelical space, but we almost need to approach the scriptures afresh and anew with an openness to learn, adapt, and grow, not dropping God's standard, but rather getting on track with God's elevated standard on these topics so that We can, again, be more helpful to our world. We can reclaim what God originally designed. And from that, we can flourish in our own lives as well as encourage flourishing in the lives of others. Both for for those who have never entered into this world and maybe even for those who have entered into this world of sexuality outside of marriage, outside of God's due process or design or whatever else. And you know what? They're working through things and we want to be a source of mercy and grace and understanding and compassion as well as aid and help to help people move along and move forward and find healing and not use guilt and shame as the tools of correction, but rather we would use love and mercy and understanding and forgiveness and and accepting people in their space. Like those would be the motivators for a different track in life. Because to me, I think this topic, along with every other topic, is a missional opportunity. And our job is is above all else to try to figure out how to be in this world, in all spaces, including sexuality, how to be everyday missionaries.